0: Hello everyone. Welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I have to say I approach this particular podcast not quite like Boris Johnson at the Dispatch Box, but uh, with a real sense of sadness about this kind of closing moment because this is my last week at the IFG. I start as Director Chief Executive of Chatham House after the August bank holiday. And so I'm going to be saying goodbye to a lot of colleagues, a lot of you. But it leaves us with a question of what we talk about today. And I am not going to take us through a survey of the extraordinary six years that we and the country and the world have had since I started here. Maybe I should say I took the job just two days before the 2016 referendum. But I am going to ask my colleagues to dig into three big questions about the state of government that really hang over our work today. Uh, We're going to start with the economy. It doesn't get smaller than that. And it's that's going to dominate this year, not just the conservative leadership race, which we're hearing now. We're then going to go on to the civil service. And with half of Britain stuck at Dover or in airports or at home because they don't have their passports, I've asked my colleagues to give their best answer as to why stuff just doesn't, doesn't work. And then we're going on to perhaps the biggest question, the Constitution and what Boris Johnson has shown us about how it works and how it fails. In all of this, my colleagues are going to be running in and out of our special podcast room in different batches. So round one, the economy, and I've got with me two senior fellows, Giles Wilkes, formerly of Number 10, Jill Rutter, formerly of the Treasury, and lots of other places. Hi, both. Hello. Hi there. Great to have you here. Giles, look, big question. Brexit, coronavirus, levelling up. What should we make of government's efforts?
1: Uh, let me think. I'll go through those in random order. Leveling up, um I don't think they've really started. I think they've taken it seriously, as seriously as any previous governments who normally have had an agenda in this area before. We used to call it rebalancing the country, and there was a substantial white paper that we all waited for a gog at the, at, um, the Institute for Government. We had a whole team to analyze it at speed, so we think they took it really seriously. But they recognised it was a decade-long program at the time. The paper came out boris johnson expected another decade but it um from that moment onwards his time in downing street seemed to crumble away and nothing much happened i mean brexit i think we are seeing in real time the um the the performance of this as a policy idea um in in an extremely sort of tangible form we have incredible queues at the border in kent and um a weak productivity performance labor shortages all of the um all of the negative effects you might have predicted from Brexit. And, you know, what more can we say about this? We kind of saw this as a as a negative for the economy, 5% of GDP, a highly sort of abstract portrayal of what this means, but we're now seeing it in the tangible way. You can't get the things done that you wanted to have done in as straightforward a way as you could before when we were in the EU. I mean, what was the third of those? It was coronavirus.
0: Right. Well, Just in case it slipped your mind. Well, I mean,
1: the management of coronavirus, I think we actually did pretty well on that as an economy. I I think Rishi Sunak was incredibly quick to respond and introduce schemes like the furlough scheme that you would normally take years to introduce as a government. They came in by April 2020, when coronavirus itself wasn't even being treated of as a serious topic in February 2020. And I think they uh, exited from the coronavirus programmes in a reasonably speedy and appropriate way. So I think our treatment of coronavirus as a government was pretty good and reflected um, how we could do better. In particular, if you look at things like the vaccine rollout and the, the development of vaccines and so forth, I'd say you'd give them a pretty good strong mark for the economic response there yeah
0: okay well you've got one negative which is brexit you've got one kind of positive on on, on coronavirus and one not not started on leveling up jill what do you make of it so
2: going through the three in the same way as giles on leveling up i think yes the government's done quite well to identify that but of course it's not the first government to identify problems in regional inequality and variations in regional productivity and as giles said uh, if it was an easy, quick problem to fix, earlier governments would sort have of c- fixed it in a quick and easy way. And they haven't. I think they're slightly hampered by some of the sort of lack of institutions that we used to have out in the region. So we might be saying it would have been interesting to see what happens with that sort of decade-long programme, but we don't know what a new prime minister is going to do. In On Brexit, I think the government has suffered quite badly from being a pro-Brexit government that is not prepared to take seriously a lot of the concerns expressed by those who thought the economy was more important than sovereignty on what the implications of the sort of Brexit they chose would be for the economy. So if you dial back to David Frost, Boris Johnson's chief negotiator, regarded something of a guru, parts of the Conservative Party, his speech in Brussels, which he made as a special advisor quite intriguingly in February 2020, uh, set out that he actually didn't think that non-tariff barriers to trade were really significant. He thought they were massively overhyped. I think what we're seeing playing out now in real time is the fact they're not overhyped, they're really quite serious, and that there is, if you like, a sort of timing problem on Brexit, that if you do a deal like the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and effectively yank the UK out, or at least Great Britain, out of a sort of frictionless relationship with the EU and put it into a friction-full relationship in the hope that you can deliver long-run gains through deregulation, alternative policy choices, more appropriate policy choices, you crystallise the pain very much quickly and then you have to wait really quite a long time for those benefits to flow out. So the government is definitely in the sort of period of maximum pain and then if we roll into coronavirus, I think it's very interesting. I think Charles is absolutely right. I mean when the Rishi Sunak stood up and announced that furlough scheme, I thought, oh my God, those payments won't go out. It's going to be an unmitigated disaster. And they did. And that administratively is a real achievement for Treasury, but in particular for HMRC that they did that. And universal credit stood up really, really well, which, you know, for those of us who spent a decade writing things about universal credit problems, was really interesting. But I think there's been a different sort of scarring as a result of COVID. We expected scarring in terms of unemployment. But in fact, we have scarring in terms of a diminished labour supply. So we're seeing all these vacancies compounded by the ending of cheap movement of labour, uh, because actually free movement of labour was free in the sense you didn't have to pay loads of costs to bring people in. We're bringing lots of people in, but from countries where you have to pay a lot to the Home Office to do yeah. it and go through lots of bureaucratic processes. Yeah. Uh, let, actually- me, let
0: me ask you one, one thing, what does Northern Ireland tell us, which is doing actually rather well in economic terms compared to the rest of the UK. What does that tell us about about Brexit?
2: I think the Northern Ireland picture is, is mixed. Uh it's very mixed in Northern Ireland. I think there are some firms that are undoubtedly benefiting from the protocol and are a bit worried that any question marks over the protocol will make it harder for them to benefit. There are others that are not benefiting from the protocol and are suffering from these sort of GB into NI friction. I think there is a bit of sign of withdrawal of some. GB businesses that can't be bothered to incur the costs of exporting to Northern Ireland not doing that. Of course, the protocol's not being implemented fully yet. If you talk to people in the Treasury about the fact that the stats suggest that Northern Ireland economy is performing better, they say that's because of its relatively larger size of public sector. So actually they would say it's a sort of bit of a statistical illusion. Um most of the studies don't actually separate out Northern Ireland because it's too small to gauge the.
0: So it doesn't really impact. work then as a test so of, of, of 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 what the impact of Brexit so is. It,
2: so, I mean, it will do, I think, in the longer run if we get stability for long enough. But I think that's one of the things the Chancellor was forced to admit at the Treasury Select Committee in March, off the back of the OBR's uh, assessment, economic and fiscal outlook, that. Brexit had dampened business investment and made the UK a the uncertainty about the nature of the future relationship had yeah. acted as a break on business investment. That's a bit of a downer if you're worried about productivity. The continuing threat to the trade and cooperation agreement, because of the continuing disagreements over the protocol, make the UK quite an unattractive destination. Going forward, if yeah. you were looking at something, same. the other bit I would say just very quickly is public services as a part of the scarring and the big backlogs that we're seeing, Yes, partly because they were so unready. Because which I'm going to come on to in these
0: st- st- stuff not working. Some of that is obviously coronavirus, Giles, mm-hmm. sorry.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, Jill has highlighted a really interesting potential failure you might accuse the government of in the coronavirus um, management, which, is, uh, which are the labour shortages, which literally none of us saw. I think it's fair to say that no economist around the middle of 2020 was saying, watch out, you're going to have a diminished labour force. We were all worried about 20% unemployment. So in that sense, I wouldn't accuse the government of having perpetrated an error so much as the entire policymaking community. However, it's a particular problem for the UK and the UK government because we have habitually relied on a high labour force, low investment economic model. And as Jill says, when we then also make it much harder to invest in this country and then add to this – a diminished labour force suddenly coming with exacerbated by the Brexit opportunities. You have this witch's brew of of poor economic conditions from which the UK is uniquely suffering. And some of that is the government's fault. If they took a good strategic look at this economy, they'd say either we need to do something radical on investment or we need to do something about getting the labour force going. And instead, they're kind of doing nothing sufficient on either.
0: I'm really interested in the way that you're both talking as if government does absolutely have a role in solving some of these problems, like levelling up, like productivity and so on.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's a very fair charge in the sense that mostly governments inherit an economy and 95% of it they can't do very much about. They have enough time to maybe change 5% of it and that takes five or 10 years. So you're right that it's really difficult to turn some of this stuff around, but some things they do have control over. For example, the shortage occupation list, they can be more liberal in that way, for example, the the shape of the Brexit deal. All of us in Downing Street who left in 2019, I think, well, many of us were surprised at quite how harsh a route Boris Johnson. Oh, sorry,
0: I'm sitting here thinking, what is the shortage occupation list?
1: Sorry, the shortage occupation <laughs> list. Are the, are, <laughs> no, are no, the I was people peering at you really hard as if telepathy was going to work? Sorry, but the it didn't. Um, the um, they're the pe- they're the exception to the immigration rules. In other words, the extra people you can take on in certain occupations when you have a problem like butchers and and lorry right, drivers okay, and so okay. forth. I got it. But the other choice that I think the government made and took the wrong one was the hard Brexit. We all thought when we were leaving Downing Street in 2019, well, Boris Johnson is the last hope of the, um, of the ERG, the hard um, Brexiteers. He can turn around to them and say, look, it's my deal or nothing. And he could have chosen a softer deal as a result. He could have said, look, we need to be prioritizing the economy. Brexit is safe with me. He chose a really hard Brexit instead. And from that point of view, the, the weak investment. Um, incentives and the poor labour force outcomes are to a large degree his fault.
0: Jill, last bit on this.
2: I think, in a sense, Giles is right. The Prime Minister chose a very hard Brexit. I think it's choosing that sort of hard Brexit but refusing to face up and therefore be able to address the economic consequences of this. I think it's perfectly fair to say that's the way we want to operate in the future and not at all clear from the way that the EU... Uh, reacted to Theresa May's deal that a much softer Brexit, a sort of pick and mix Brexit was really on offer from the EU if you weren't prepared to accept the institutional framework and ties of a Norway-style deal. So I think it's really interesting where you could go. But I think it's the government's, in a sense, you know, one of the big pluses of Boris Johnson is his ability to talk a good game. But one of his problems is that that maybe the government even convinces itself with its own rhetoric that everything is going so well and being world-beating that doesn't take a step back and say, actually, it's perhaps not so world-beating and maybe we need to make some policy decisions to address some of the very real problems that are consequences for the
0: sort of Brexit that we knowingly chose. Okay, well, we have one candidate in the Conservative leadership race saying something like that, but uh, perhaps not the other one. Giles, thanks, as always, for your enormous eloquence and passion on these things. Jill, who also displays all those things in spades, is staying with us for our next topic. So, jars thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Bowman.
0: So, our next topic is the civil service and why stuff in government just doesn't work. And we've still got Jill with us, and I've also got with me now, this is kind of musical mics, Alex Thomas, Programme Director of our civil service work. Hi, Alex. Hello, Bowman. And we also joined by Matthew Gill, Programme Director for our work on public bodies. Hi, Matthew.
3: Hi, Bowman.
0: Great to have you here. Alex, let me start with you. There is a lot of discussion. I mean, you're hard to get away from it these days about why things just aren't working. And you take on the phrase broken Britain. And people talk about driving licences and passports not being issued on time, as well as the huge things like the health service with giant waiting lists. What do you say to people, family, people who know what you do for a living, who, when they ask why stuff doesn't work?
4: Huge question here. You know, being married to a barrister, I get why doesn't the court system work? Why is the <laughs> justice system in, in such a mess. Quite quite a lot. I mean, I suppose that all of these um, all of these questions. It is a big and complicated question, and I guess that's the first uh, you know that's the first part of the answer, which is these are big, complicated systems, and uh, each individually uh, you know taken in isolation uh, you know, should be relatively straightforward to issue driving licences or passports but when you pile the whole thing uh, on on together uh, and particularly it's what I always sort of think about as the, the, the London underground problem we were th- the first in the world to have an underground railway which then makes it quite difficult to start from scratch each time when you introduce new policies or do sort of more patch and repair so I think one of the difficulties operating the british state if you like is there's a lot of patch and repair and a lot of which which is a sort of um uh you know self-fulfilling uh, addition to complexity and so f- further and further there. so there is a sort of just so a, an
0: old country uh first in yeah. in the game in, in some of these things and now trying to yeah. catch up
4: if we were designing a national health service from scratch we would probably not design it in the way that we we have a NHS at, at the moment and so there is just a sort of you know incremental patch and repair it's quite hard to wipe the slate clean uh the, this stuff is is difficult and hairy but I, I don't mean that as a sort of excuse if you like for um uh, for, for things going wrong but there's, there's it's worth recognizing that I think is a bit of context the second answer just thinking about it is um uh, Brexit and Covid, these two sort of huge subjects have sucked the air out of quite a lot of debate about public service reform. The old sort of, I don't want to sound too Blairite, you know, what matters is what works type approach. And I think we have been in an era of ideological politics and ideology and uh, just listening to uh, Jill talk about some some of the sort of trade-offs that Boris Johnson hasn't faced up to, ideology perhaps trumping that kind of uh, um, Freudian phrase there, um, uh, trumping that uh, question about effectiveness and just the sort of effectiveness of the state has had less political attention. And whatever the civil service does or, do, or doesn't do, if the politicians are giving this less attention then um it's going to be less um it's uh, a really less, interesting less, point
0: that re- that rings true um, uh, the other I mean, got another
4: if, one <laughs> uh, no, quickly, on. sorry i was no too, no no too no, no, really, no no but the, the, no, the no. other is um performance management in the public sector whether that's individual uh, officials civil servants uh people in the public sector i think generally is not what it might be and i think this comes to uh you know classic institute for government theme about accountability and fudges in the british state about who is really responsible for what and i think that feeds through to the effectiveness of performance management i don't know a civil servant or a public servant who thinks the uk has got it right in terms of how um uh, uh, individual public servants are performance managed and you know really creating conditions for the best to flourish and the worst not to be employed anymore and then fourthly uh, and this is the last one is just money and I left it to last because it's the sort of obvious point but austerity casts a long shadow over the British uh, state and I think some of this is just down to resources and money.
0: That's right I'm going to come back to the money point but uh, Matthew you write a lot about public bodies which is a banal term for organisations that really at the the heart of our public life how much is their fault?
3: Well I think um, that's very difficult to to answer at a general level, I mean, I think there's been a narrative over the last sort of twenty years, really, um, of trying to um, reduce the number of public bodies, and to some extent, think of when you hear language, it's been in the press even over the weekend from Liz Truss about another bonfire of the Quangos trying to um, r- reduce this 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 element of of, of the state. Um, I think, um, and I think that kind of language. Um, is problematic because these public bodies are hugely varied, do hugely different things. Some of them have problems. A lot of them don't. A lot of them are delivering really, really um, What's well. What's an example of I one think- that
0: works well?
3: So, one that's worked well, for instance, would be from the from the pandemic. The the MHRA, Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, had quite a clear public voice, was quite authority through the pandemic, good leadership, uh, and was able to move really quickly on, on on some of those things and had a really had a really sort of um, clear uh, role. I think. Um, I think structurally there are some there are some difficulties about um, reforming public bodies, um, and it goes to actually some of the points Alex was making about patch and and, and repair, um, where if these were private sector organisations, you would have the opportunity for creative discussion. Destruction, for instance, the driver um, driver licensing, there might be a competitor, you might decide to close, exit the market, all of these things. None of that happens in the, in the public sector. So you have to rely on being able to make incremental improvements. At the same time, the risk appetite of decision makers for those incremental improvements is sometimes lower in the public sector because the consequences of something go, going wrong, for instance, you implement a significant IT change that improves things, but you never want to be in a position where that implementation goes wrong and there's an interruption in service. And so those kinds of reforms can be very slow, very incremental. And so it's quite difficult um, to reform and to improve performance in a public body because of those constraints. Add to that political decision making and time horizons, uh, which are often much shorter than you would you would ideally want for this kind of organisation. And we we need to get better at um, recognising when incremental reform is necessary but driving that with clarity of objectives over the medium to long term
0: Jill this point about money Alex was saying look some of this just doesn't have enough money does that hit the spot do you think that's
2: certainly true for some of the big Public services, I mean, your sort of backlogs, but there's money and then there's people. Even if you had money, can you actually get trained staff to perform operations? So I think there's lots of things. We've had lots of debates recently, say, about workforce planning in the NHS as a big issue. So I think there are undoubtedly sort of resource constraints and lack of proper plans, the idea that we're about to have another spending review having having had one last year to have a look again. I think that's also one of the big sort of fallacies of both civil service numbers and of ALBs. We've had in the leadership campaign in the early stages. Uh, offers to fund lots of things by cutting numbers of civil servants or by cutting quangos unless you're prepared to actually genuinely cut services or big grants to third party organisations you're not going to do that and even something like the MHRA is suffering as a consequence of Brexit it has more tasks because we're now outside the European Medicines Agency it has less income because it used to get income in Uh, It suffers because actually quite a lot of its people used to be drawn from European nationals who were qualified. So it's drawing on a smaller pool and it's running a quite high vacancy level, but doesn't really have the money to fill it. So I think there are some real problems even at that sort of micro level, particularly when the government then has an agenda of getting ahead
0: of the EU in terms of... It's really interesting. Is there a Brexit factor in the passport problems?
2: I don't know whether, uh, what I don't in, know, I in was intrigued to know whether Alice, Alex has done any work on whether there are high vacancies rates. We've heard the great withdrawal of the sort of 50 somethings plus decide that, to leave the labour force as one of but the that's interesting.
0: I wasn't thinking of that so much as people needing um, their passports in different ways, needing them renewed, uh, the I, EU uh, having, having limits on how. Um, I, where so, your passport can expire and that kind of thing. So
2: you do need – you do have less flexibility with your passports as a result of Brexit. Um because you need to have six months validity on it and that sort of overhang time you get if you renew early isn't valid in the eu anymore so you need to renew your passport a bit sooner i think the real problem there though was lots of people didn't use their passports for quite some time then discovered that they did need them again because they were traveling again post covid and all applied in a giant rush and were indeed told during the pandemic not to apply for passports so you built yeah. up a
0: backlog and didn't
2: plan yeah. Yeah, to deal it's with it yeah. we've
4: had we've had problems at the the passport office, since uh, long before Brexit, <laughs> was a twinkle
0: in, uh, even the most heart of you are so. Yes. Matthew, um, um, uh, the, the passport office sort of falls under your, your bailiwick.
3: Yeah. yeah and I, I think, I mean, th- those issues are really, really interesting. I mean, on the, on the one hand, you've, you've, you're you dealing there with, it, with a system um, that, you know, uh, that kind of system is a sort of system that government will design for efficiency. It's doing a a, um, a repetitive task a lot of times as efficiently as possible. And often the most efficient system for doing that is not the most flexible in response to a change in, in circumstances, for instance, due to due to COVID. So that's a problem. I think the other thing that's important bearing in mind with the passport office recently is part of the problem with delays was not their fault. Part of it was TNT, the delivery company, that was delivering passports after they had processed them. And so the, the narrative that this is the fault of the public body possibly. Possibly is, is, is limited in that. And We need to think about contracting with the private sector and whether a contract to the private sector, in this case TNT, actually solves any of the problems that some people think it would.
4: To Jill's point about whether there's been a sort of exodus from the civil service, if you like, or um, uh, you know, big changes in the work- workforce numbers, we are actually this week, we're hoping, expecting the latest uh, civil service uh, data. So we may uh, know more in a few days. But actually, the um, overall uh, numbers of the civil servants suggest there hasn't been a sort of big exodus yet. Although this is, you know, a little bit um, backdated, so uh, so we haven't got uh, we haven't got the most recent numbers. But it suggests that uh, that actually, as in other sectors, the the pandemic has uh, stabilised the civil service workforce in the short term, probably because it's sort of safe harbour in difficult economic times. But I would expect that to unfreeze, and we might see some quite dramatic changes. Certainly, anecdotally, lots of people uh, are keen to talk about leaving the civil service.
0: And that's even before being uh, eased out by Jacob Rees Mogg's mm. famous yeah. ninety-one thousand.
4: Uh, if it if it, if that uh, sustains through the leadership contest, which one way or another I suspect it will. You know, government efficiency is not going to go away through this uh, through this contest. Whether, whether the ninety-one thousand uh, lasts or not, we shall see.
2: But I do think there is a sort of interesting question there, which maybe predominantly affects people at the top of the civil service. Which is, we were talking earlier on the economy about sort of facing facts. I think it's a really Interesting question. With some of these service uh, service problems is is the relationship between ministers and their top civil servants, people who run these, such that they can have an honest conversation about what the problems genuinely are, and then come up with some you know solutions to get through, or is it you know actually is a bit more of a blame game with one side throwing buns at the other side, and bl- in which case you don't end up with that. And we've seen certainly in some departments, some ministers actually deliberately going out and saying their agenda being frustrated by their civil servants. We saw the Dominic Cummings hard rain, which led to some departures in 2020, seen less of that subsequently. We certainly had quite a lot of ministers deciding that there is advantage in going out for sort of, you know, frontal attack on the civil service, mm-hmm. whether it's by announcing mm-hmm. cuts on the radio before permanent sections have a chance to tell their staff or accusing people from not working from... Oh, about working from home rather than addressing poor performance and things. So I think there's a really interesting question about will a new administration create a culture in which there's a bit more of a joint endeavour between ministers and the civil service?
0: We are going to have to find out, but not right now, because that is the end of our second topic. So the three of you, Jill Rutter, Alex Thomas, Matthew Gill, many thanks indeed. And you're now allowed to climb out of our very hot podcast studio in our basement. And with that, we're into our third and final topic, maybe the biggest of all, and that's the constitution of the UK and what Boris Johnson has taught us about it. So, my final group, who've been working very hard on this, arguing with others about this, explaining it to the world Hannah White, deputy director, who's going to be taking over from me as acting director at the end of this week. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Borman. Dr. Kath Haddon, our historian and constitutional specialist. Hi, Kath. Hello. Maddy Timont-Jack, who's been leading our Brexit work recently, and now our review of the UK Constitution with the Bennett Institute of Public Policy at Cambridge University. Hi, Maddie. Hi, Broman. Great to have you all here. Well, Kath, maybe you can kick it off for us. What's Johnson shown us?
5: I think that, I mean, the thing we're all obsessed with is, has it shown up um, failures in the constitution or the lack of resilience in the constitution there's an interesting debate going on at the moment whereas you know whether actually the constitution worked in the end you know the prime minister departed departed in the sort of time-honored tradition of his MPs putting pressure on him uh, resignations from cabinets and um, he did go but even that final departure we were seeing sort of suggestions that he might push against constitutional conventions and norms and possibly even try and push against the rules of his own Conservative Party um, and try and somehow stick it out so even at the end people were wondering well what can you do to force somebody who doesn't stick to the sort of norms or the expectations of of how a a constitution works and that has been a theme throughout and I think the the two big things then to 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 ask about that is one is this just you know an anomaly where actually it's showing up these vulnerabilities, but um, in the end, you know, the the consensus that this was wrong came good and, and, you know, we've managed to navigate it. Or, um, you know, do we need much stronger rules around our constitution to make sure that, um, you know, another Johnson or something worse would, you know, not be able to take advantage of that? Um, I think that's the big debate.
6: Hannah, what's your answer? Well, I I was just thinking because one of the most important things in the constitution is really the power of precedent. Mm. Um, When you don't have a written constitution, the way things have been done before and what people have tried is really important. And so even if you say Johnson may have been an anomaly, and I'm not sure whether it's clear the two uh, contenders now for the prime ministership would uh, necessarily act that differently to him, uh, it's an, an interesting question to see. But even if it was an anomaly, Now the precedent has been set on lots of these things. Arguably, that's changed the constitution in any case.
5: Yeah, but that goes in both directions. You can argue that... um you know, in a sense, the the ability to say, well, why do we do things things this way? Do we have to? Does anyone, can anyone make me? Has opened up the question for future prime ministers on a lot of aspects of the constitution. But I think also the pushback and the fact that even though it's not full part of the conservative leadership debate, so many of the resignation letters of his ministers were citing integrity and, you know, the importance of the rules and our our constitution and our institutions. Um, I think, in a sense, it has also really Affirmed to a lot of people that this stuff matters, um, and that you've got to have some kind of, you know, okay. some kind of rules. We're
0: agreed it matters, um, yeah. uh, and I think Johnson's made everyone think of that. Maddie, you're leading this big review for us with a big distinguished advisory panel.
7: Do we need more rules? I mean, I think I think to be honest, we we haven't necessarily got to a point where we've made a decision on that. I think what we're really interested in at the moment is. Is sort of where should power lie within the constitution? Is it lying in the right place? Is the balance of power between, for example, government and parliament, is it is it at the right place? Do you need to change parliamentary procedure, for example, to readdress the balance of power there? And I think that I think it is. It's a question that we are we are looking at, and I, I don't want to sort of uh, necessarily come to conclusions before we've, we've done our full research. But I do think the one thing I would say, sort of reflecting on Boris Johnson, I mean, some of what we have seen under the Boris Johnson's government is a trend that we saw under previous governments so again thinking about the sort of the relationship between government and parliament that was incredibly fought under Theresa May and actually his government has sort of continued along that trend so I also think that you know while it it might be an anomaly but there is also some longer trends that we should look at when we're considering how the constitution functions today.
0: That's a really important point that it isn't just Boris Johnson. Hannah you've written a whole book about this about the power of parliament Um, uh uh, compared to the government and so on do do we need more power though does it need more power well
6: this is this is a really sort of important question i think because in a parliamentary democracy it only works if the, the parliament from which the government is drawn can operate effectively as a check on that executive you've got um ministers being given powers to do things which have, as we've seen with COVID, massive implications for all our lives. And there has to be a, a plausible mechanism by which they can be held to account for that. And I think one of the things we've seen both with Theresa May and with Boris Johnson has been a real pushback against whether it's right for Parliament to exercise this this role as a, as a check on the executive. I think ever since we had the referendum in 2016, there's, there's been this sense of a, another Um, authority out there, the authority of the will of the people, where if ministers are challenged by parliament, they feel, well, that's not appropriate. If if you're challenging what we're doing, we are interpreting the will of the people to be that we should act in the following way and parliament shouldn't get in the way. And then Boris Johnson came in with his 80-seat majority and felt that he had a mandate from the people again to deliver on his manifesto. And again, the sense from government very much has been parliament shouldn't be... uh, exercising a sort of check on the executive because that's going against the mandate from the people.
0: That's a really good description um, of the state of play. And as you said, it's an important question. What do you think?
6: Yeah, I, I am worried about the situation we've got into. It, it seems to be that ministers are more and more comfortable with ignoring some of the norms around what Parliament would expect to be able to do uh, in terms of refusing to turn up to select committees, uh, in terms of bringing forward legislation which has very little policy detail in it, so Parliament can't get into scrutinising that, in terms of asking Parliament to grant it all sorts of powers to legislate using secondary legislation, which then uh, receives very little scrutiny from Parliament. So this Role that Parliament is supposed to be playing in terms of being a check on the executive just isn't operating as it is intended to do. Cass, more rules? Yeah,
5: I think, I mean, what's been fascinating about this whole process, and again, the departure of Boris Johnson, you could argue, in the end showed that it it works, is all of that uh, depends on a parliamentary majority. And when you have a majority for one party, that means that the leader of that party, if they can hold their, their you know, MPs to it, has a lot of sway. So a lot of the time that, you know, we sort of say, oh, Parliament could do this or Parliament could do that. And then the response I get off from people on Twitter is, yes, but they have a majority there, Conservatives have a majority, they won't do anything. And what we have seen is eventually the threshold was met where they did do something um, and they felt that it was right to remove the Prime Minister. So in a sense, this whole process has shown how that parliamentary check does happen. Um, the question for people is whether or not it took too long, too much and caused too much damage before that sort of motive was there for them to act.
6: That would be my concern, really, is that actually, particularly with the period of Brexit and then the period of the pandemic, ministers and backbench MPs have got used to certain norms around the relationship between Parliament and the executive, where Parliament you know, is really taking a back seat. That's what ministers expect of Parliament backbenchers a third of whom have come in since 2017 uh, don't know anything different than a a role a a situation in which parliament doesn't really have much purchase on the executive and I think that that is a concern.
7: I was just going to say on that I mean what's also interesting though and I think we have a very nice chart produced by our colleague Dr Alice Lilly showing that actually you've also seen a real increase in backbench Mm -hmm. rebellions and we have seen backbenchers try and influenced government decisions and we saw a lot of u-turns during the pandemic for example that did come about from sort of pressures within the party and so i think there's also quite an interesting question about the relationship within the party in the parliament about the relationship between government and its backbenchers as well that also feels like it's changing at the moment
6: that's definitely true. I think, you know, there has been an a increase in backbenchers' willingness to rebel. And that's something which I'm not sure governments have fully adjusted to either. They sometimes expect to be able to get their business through without uh, bringing the backbenchers on board in a way which actually isn't realistic
0: anymore. Maddie, you were leading our Brexit work. Um, what has Brexit and the Johnson experience over Brexit taught us about the constitution?
7: Well, I mean, we've sort of covered a little bit around government and parliament. I mean, the other thing that we haven't talked about at all, and that is a very fundamental part of the Constitution, is the union. And I think that's one of the areas that we still, I think, are are trying to figure out what impact Brexit has had on the future of the union of the United Kingdom. And, you know, there are some really fundamental, you know, we saw a breakdown in the relationship between the different parts of the UK. We had sort of Wales and the leaders of Wales and Scotland being very critical of how the government handle Brexit, there was a, there was, you know, there wasn't consensus across the UK in terms of voting to leave the EU. And, and so there were some real fundamental questions about how should you embark on that process, given the fact there were some quite serious divisions between different parts of the UK about what the relationship with the EU should look like. And that's sort of without even getting onto the question around Northern Ireland, and how Northern Ireland fits within the UK's internal market. And, and also questions about the future of Northern Ireland and the future of its relationship with the Republic. So I think that's actually another area that it's something we want to look at in the review about the sort of territorial constitution. But that's something that I think we are still sort of trying to grapple with and the questions of Indiref sort of 2, etc. are still very much unanswered at this stage.
0: Lots, lots more questions, lots more unanswered questions. So I'd love to hear from you all how big you think reforms might have to be, whether they're small ones like tweaking the powers of Parliament or really big ones, including more devolution.
5: Uh, well, my favourite article this week was Christopher Hope writing about Johnson's comeback and how that might happen. Uh, and he at one point started talking about how perhaps Johnson would even try and start his own parliamentary party but then you know realized that actually with first past the post that's quite difficult to do so and then was thinking well maybe if Labour get in and the Liberal Democrats you know form some part of it and then we have you know change in the voting system then Johnson would be able to get his party and get back into power I mean it's quite extraordinary I've been writing for some time now about um you know forgetting the the, re- the perspective of the rest of us the risks for um johnson's government those who who also argue you know that they should be able to push at these these norms and you know these constraints um that they should be careful what they wish for because you could end up seeing a much greater hardening and i do think that whether it's under this next government they they do tackle some of the issues around uh, integrity and ethics or whether it's under a future labor government or whatever we will see increased codification and given that you know, the last government in particular, their big concern was the courts playing an ever greater role in our democracy, in our politics. I mean, it's quite ironic that they have made the greatest case for a greater role for the courts in all of that.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think you don't really get any serious change in the uh, sort of dynamic of the way our system of government works while you have the voting system that we have. I'm not arguing that we should necessarily change it, but first-past-the-post is a really pervasive influence over the way in which politics is done um, and the, ex- the incentives that there are on anyone who's in government to change things, and it, also on the incentives of the people who are in opposition, because you when you have a, essentially a two-party system, Anyone who uh, is in opposition is thinking anxiously about their next time when they're going to be in government. So, this is what we've seen in the past with, you know, when there have been attempts, you know, to push forward reform, always these get um, pushed back, not just by, by government who can't see why it's in their interests but by the opposition too. So I think if you look at other countries, you know, New Zealand for example, you only really see a change in the culture of politics when you have a change in in the voting system. So we can tinker around the edges and we can try and think of ways to sort of strengthen parliament to rebalance things, to change the culture, I think around Ministers recognising the importance of, of Parliament and and how it can actually help them uh, spotting problems in policies which they come back to bite them further down the line and so on. Um, but there may need to be bigger answers to some of these bigger questions.
0: Maddy?
7: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Hannah and it's something that I'm really struck by um, in the work that we've done so far in the review is that, for a lot of not not everyone but when you do have some conversations with people who might work in in different parts of the constitution you know i'm not just talking about government but there's sort of a sense of well we do it that way because that's how we've always done things. And I do think there is a slight reluctance to consider some more fundamental changes. I mean, think, for example, about introducing proxy votes. That was such a battle to think about how to, to sort of just allow people who weren't able to be present in the building to be able to vote. And it was, it was such a big win that, when that changed. But I actually do think that we should be, we should be willing to consider Um, More fundamental changes to how the constitution works. It doesn't necessarily mean more codification. I think it's just thinking about what are the principles and conventions we rely on, and do they make sense in the sort of the 21st century and in in the democracy that we want to have? And and that is something that I'm I'm hoping we will try and get to grips with over the next year in the work that we're doing. Um, Because, as as Hannah says, you know, at this stage we're not necessarily going to endorse a change to the voting system, but at the same time, I think you need to think through: well, what would more fundamental changes look like, and how would that change? And impact the problems that we we think exist in the constitution. Would it bring about a better way of working? And actually, does the UK need to sort of be willing to to, to sort of get to gra- grips a bit more with some of those, rather than sort of relying on the, the age old sort of answer of well, that's the tradition and that that's how we we want to continue to do it? I think it is important that we're willing to, willing to update and change and um, to improve uh, both the functioning of the constitution, but also how the people, how the public engage with how they're governed. Maddy, thanks
0: very much. You can have my own answer as well, if you like. Um, I I think there will be pressure to codify things now that taboos have been broken, conventions have been broken, um, if you like, and I would be delighted to see what a change in the voting system did to some of these um, questions of power balances, but it's not uh, a solution to everything, as we can see in Wales and and Scotland, which have versions of um, proportional representation and still can end up with very monolithic governments. But it may be an answer to some of these things that we've been talking about, including the inability to get persistent uh, consensus on things and indeed increase Parliament's power. But that is going to be all. Thank you. To all my colleagues for joining me today, that's a bumper group of Maddie, Timot jack Kath Haddon, Hannah White, Alex Thomas, Matthew Gill, Jill Rutter and Giles Wilkes. It's about a quarter of the research team here. And thank you all for listening to this episode and others down the years as it now is since we started Inside Briefing. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms. Do leave us a review, as always. And don't forget to visit our website at instituteforgovernment.org.uk we've got also a terrific summer special podcast series coming for you we've brought together some terrific panels to give you all the summer holiday listening you could ask for we've got something on the value of party conferences we've talked to former number 10 staffers from the blair cameron and may eras about what the next incumbent needs to change and we delve into the life cycle of a minister sometimes rather short these days So thank you, Candice McKenzie, for producing this and always setting us off with a cheerful have a great podcast, which the listeners won't hear, but we do. And thanks to Sam McCrory, our comms director, for creating this series. No hasta la vista jokes. I thought the Prime Minister was pushing it myself on that one. So simply goodbye from me, and I'll be listening to as one of the audience, beginning with this summer's brilliant lineup of special podcasts until the regular Inside Briefing returns after the summer recess with Hannah White hosting. Goodbye.